Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Challoner and you join us on another bright day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. A little later on in the programme I'll be welcoming England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero Sir Jeff Hurst. But first and foremost I'm delighted to be joined by Indy Toot. Indy is the Managing Director of UV Care Group a care provider which encompasses four care homes based on the Isle of Thanet and in Canterbury. Indy, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you, Scott, and thanks for having me here. It's a real pleasure having you joining us on the airwaves this afternoon. Um, Normally, we would dive straight into the topic of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate we do start there. Um, I'm sure you'll agree it's proving to be one of the most significant challenges for leaders within our time and for communities alike. Um, But how has it affected you and your operations being in the care industry? I can imagine the challenges have been tremendous for you. Yeah, they have. Um, they really have. They've been, it's been difficult for, for everybody across the board, for all the way from the resident family members, the resident staff, to the management of the services and those that are having their hands within the service to make sure that we continue to provide a good quality care, which we aim to do. So, yeah, it's affected everybody. It's affected timelines mainly and these restrictions of physical connections or connectivity between the people within the service, their loved ones and health professionals that are required on an ongoing basis. And in terms of just how significant the impacts have been on care staff, especially, there's been so many stories um, in the uh, the media of people having to stay into care homes and are stopping themselves from seeing their families just to reduce the risks of COVID-19 transmission. So how has it been from a mental health perspective managing all of this? Because I can imagine that's been a tremendous challenge with all of the worry and sort of the social isolation elements of the lockdown um, alongside as well. It definitely has, but I, have to, I can proudly say that all of our staff really wedged together. There was a few at high risk which needed to be furloughed, which we were happy to accommodate for. But the rest of the staff team pulled together and, and put in those few extra hours, which they're still doing at some point, just to get us through those tough periods. It has been quite anxious for staff and for residents and for their families as well to make sure that things on site are being kept to as minimal cross-infection as we can. So we have introduced measures such as lockdown. So initially when we first came in and it was lockdown, no family members were really invited into the home. We had a conversation with each family member and they were all accepting and they fully understood our position. However, we did then look into more technological ways of communication. So something the care sector are probably a little bit behind on compared to other industries. We introduced a laptop, which we enabled Skype on, so family members were able to Skype. But because the demand was a little bit higher, um, and even me, my per- myself personally, I wasn't able to come down for six weeks because I was a non-essential visitor as well, effectively. We then had a higher demand, so staff were using their own mobiles at some point to do WhatsApp video calls. Uh, they were using pods that we have to do, again, WhatsApp or some form of virtual communication, which really helped settle nerves. It allowed people to see their loved ones. And the management was always available to talk and discuss if there was any needs or any concerns that loved ones had about their the residents that were in their care. And 
issues within the care industry, particularly in the early weeks of the pandemic, were very well documented. Of course, shortages of uh, PPE, which um, was something that the sector and indeed government really struggled to get on top of initially. It was, of course, a worldwide issue, the uh, the procurement of uh, such equipment. Since, um, obviously, we've the time has gone on. Um, I was wondering whether you'd seen any improvement in that situation and there might be a clearer way forward now, or is that something that still is raging on behind the scenes? Definitely on some products. Some products have definitely improved, like face masks. Uh, now they're available in the abundance and they were really extortionally priced at the start, but they've seemed to drop off, I suppose, as the supply and demand cycle leveling itself out. However, on some products, there are still some issues where some products have gone up sort of 10 or 12 times the normal price. For example, gloves. Other sectors that wouldn't have previously used gloves are now using gloves and aprons, and that is pushing the price of those things up. We have been supported by the local authorities to be able to invest more into our PPE, and we have looked further afield to bulk buy from international suppliers, which hasn't come to any prevail. But at the moment, we're quite ha- ha- happily stocked up on those on those pieces of equipment that we need to be able to perform our jobs. And albeit it's been an incredibly stressful, challenging and sensitive time for many, are there any sort of positive elements that you can take from this whole experience of crisis management, if we call it that? One thing that definitely came to to the surface was how committed our staff are to the residents. They came in, even when there was not limited public transport, they still managed to get in and they still managed to make sure that our residents were cared for throughout. So the amount, of, the amount of community support and spirit that came across as well. Community people were coming in and handing things to the care homes just to show their appreciation. That could have been flowers, chocolates, or people were making face coverings at home and they were dropping them in. People were donating scrubs. Lots and lots of things were donated from local businesses and local people, which showed the care staff exactly how important they were at that time. And I think they were really recognised in the media for that as well. And if we shift focus ever so slightly to address leadership just that little bit more broadly, um, of course, leaders have really had to step up and shoulder some real responsibility during this time. And that has included providing some direction, inspiration and reassurance for people during a time such as this. But when you are somebody who is not immune from pressure yourself and stress in that sense, and you need a little bit of direction in your own way. Where is it that you tend to look to for that when there isn't anybody above you within the business to refer to as such? That is a a, um, a continuous thing that does come across my path. So being at the top of the top of the ladder, as it were, sometimes the buck does stop at you, and you do have to make a decision. I think what's important is making those quick decisions and just watching for the shortfalls that come about from those decisions and addressing them as quick as you can but I do have a very good management team in place and they've got combined nearly 75 to 100 years worth of experience between them so I was able to call upon their experiences not that they'd faced anything like what we all just faced together this year even now with the second lockdown looming we had an announcement from Boris Johnson last week and with that I immediately sent an email out to our management team to advise that we would like to go into a second lockdown with immediate effect now, there were some visits that were booked for that day that we actually had to cancel as well. Uh, but all the families were rung personally and, and explained this to, and they were all very accepting of that decision. We put out a post on our Facebook, and the amount of support that we got back for that decision 
was unrivaled, even though Boris has only just formally announced that today. We took that took that immediate decision last week, and it's a decision that we were supported for, and hopefully a decision that will keep us safe. And just reflecting on sort of the uh, the government leadership throughout the uh, the crisis so far, there's been a great deal of sort of criticism of some of the things that have happened, and it's really shown us the value of hindsight through the uh, the pandemic thus far. Um, do you think that leadership is about essentially learning fundamentally and there are always going to be instances where we have to hold our hands up say that maybe one or two things could have been done better embrace that as a learning curve and then use that to improve and that's essentially what we've seen throughout this whole thing so i think there's two types of leadership one one is before hindsight and one is after so before hindsight it's about making those quick decisions with all the information that is available and then to monitor those shortfalls and address those. Mm. Secondly, I think in terms of leadership, to be able to improve oneself, we live by the morals of canny and canny is embedded within our culture. Canny represents for us continuous and never ending improvement. And the only way we can do that is by reflecting back on previous performance, previous decisions and their outcomes and just looking at how we could do that a little bit better. We very often have these discussions and those continuous discussions are helping making those small improvements in all the areas and just moving us all along with the company together and having a great profound effect in terms of the improvement we're able to then make. Now, second time round into lockdown, we do feel we're better prepared. We're more ready for it. We've got procedures in place to limit that cross-infection uh, in ways to establish the the. The, the likelihood that one of our staff members may even have COVID and how we address that as well. It's, we're in a better position now for the second lockdown because we've been under the same pressures previously to deal with it this time. So hopefully we have a very similar result, which was only one outbreak of COVID with no COVID-related deaths, which we're really proud by. Uh, at the end of the day, it's an invisible virus. We cannot guarantee any outcome, but all we can do is try our best. That's hugely right. Um, it's one of those things where promises essentially can't be made. Uh, but in leadership, as you've rightly mentioned there, you have to be able to strive for continuous improvement and be proactive in that sense, but also have an ability to be reactive to changing guidelines, changing circumstances, and be able to make those quick decisions. It is incredibly important. And striking a balance between the two can be quite the the, uh, the challenge. Um Having sort of thought about that um, and sort of what we've learned throughout the year, the pandemic uh, thus far, are there any elements of this lockdown period that you think, in terms of the way that the care sector has now had to start operating, that could become a permanent fixture of the way that it works in future, even when COVID-19 starts to become less and less of an issue and maybe we have a vaccine or a cure, such as sort of the move towards sort of remote visits and that sort of thing? I think absolutely. I think remote visits work for us really well, especially that we've got the digital equipment that we need to be able to maintain that type of communication. But also I feel like the professionals can get a lot more done as well. They can join us uh, at the sort of click of a finger if they really wanted to. We really have that need and I think that's really important rather than having to, especially our residents who are quite immobile, some of them, so it's very difficult to get them from the care home to a medical practice. So it's really helpful that we're having this virtual communication that's sort of taking over the sec- taking over the taking over the country industries, as it were. Uh, I think it's 
not too late, but I think we are slightly behind. We should have been already in this position a couple of years back when this technology was already available. But at least we're making use of it now, and we just need to make sure we're using it effectively. I think that's absolutely right. And thinking about now what may happen in future, particularly over the course of the next year, we know that we're going to have to continue to adjust to this new normal way of living and working until we have a cure or a vaccine for coronavirus. And let's keep our fingers crossed that one is found. Um, But over this next 12 months, what is it that you're really hoping to achieve at UV Care Group across all of your homes? And where is it that you see the business being in a year's time? We'd like to become more digital. So I'd say at the moment we're between 80 and 90% digital in our record keeping. So that allows us to share records with other interested parties, such as doctors, nurses, loved ones, at a, a much quicker rate than having to go through the normal postal route. So that, that's where we are on our digital side of it. We are still embedding that practice of continuous and never-ending improvement. And I believe that that needs to be a daily job for us. So in that respect, we have weekly canny letters, which recognize the staff members that are going over and above to ascertain our values. We do an employee of the month. So these things are there to embed and reinforce those values that we're trying to embed within the culture, which will be an ongoing project for us. Sounds like there's plenty to be getting on with over the uh, the course of the next year. And I certainly wish you all the uh, the luck in the world in really making that a reality. And just before India, um, I do let you go on the uh, the programme today. Um, thinking back to when you first founded the uh, the business, you grew it from a single care provider to now a business that encompasses all four of uh, your homes across the Isle of Tanit and, of course, um, Kent as well. Um, if you were to give some advice to somebody based upon the experience of growing your own business and managing a crisis like COVID-19, advice to someone who is about to maybe start their own business or step into a leadership role for the first time, what sort of advice would you give them to really get them on the road to success? So just go for it. Don't worry about failing. It happens. Just get yourself back up as quick as you can and start moving forward again. I think that's incredibly sound advice indeed. Thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme this afternoon, Indy. It's been a real, real pleasure welcoming you on. And also, I think it would be fantastic, given how enlightening it's been having you join us, to catch up at some point in the next year and have you back on the programme, just to see how some of your plans are coming along as well. Yeah, I'd be really grateful to do that. That would be very... We'd look forward to doing that again. It's an opportunity I'd also welcome as well, Indy. I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, speaking with you today. And most importantly, do continue to take care and stay safe with everything still going on because there are still many variables in the way the pandemic could go. So let's just keep our fingers crossed. It's all going to be positive trajectory from here. Yeah, I agree, Scott. I was speaking on today's programme to Indy Tut, Managing Director of UV Care Group. I would also reiterate that message to all of our listeners today. Do please continue to take care of yourselves and others, particularly with the continued lifting of restrictions. It makes a real, real difference in saving lives. Coming up next on the programme today, if you haven't heard it before, is my exclusive interview with England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Um, during his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals 
goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City, among other clubs. But he remains most renowned for the fact that he is the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup competition. And that came after his treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as I relish the opportunity to speak with Sir Jeff himself. And that is coming up next. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope may, may it last. Absolutely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, again, that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with, with this record and goodness me, that's how it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player. Uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who was a fantastic professional with with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I want England to be successful. I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in in anything, in in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I wanted to bury it. And I'd be absolutely... I would be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my, uh, my achievements, about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three in one sense is, is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth, but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking that the game's nearly finished. I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back 
to uh, hand Stilkowski, the German keeper, by that time, surely the game has got to be over. But as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss it, it and it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about. Uh, but certainly, what I was going to do, which which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours. And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope, taking a punt, can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, of making, it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life an element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service and we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh absolutely particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing and I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for w- what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, whether there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and uh, important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently, and to see individually the, the amount of people who were interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on. And, and also, it was also, for me, fantastic. All these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. Uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony. Um, for the NHS, fantastic. 
Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, ro- the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coincidence and the fortunate in your life to be at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, uh, clever enough, technically good enough to, to be around to be a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he's, he's the best coach he has worked with. And that's, just, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alfred Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined um, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher effectively, and you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. Managing people, uh, different characters, and, and all over the uh, country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over different characters, strengths, players into a unit to play for uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic. Uh, uh, people in my life, in my in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh, yes, I think it's, yes, I think it's, Leadership's important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your 
career after it's playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people make mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think, well, like, that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes. But it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life uh, and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Mm, completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and froing between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When, in, in those uh, medieval days, you, there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You um, In our road in Greenway, that was called in Chelmsford, we, that three or four lads, <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac. It's not a big, long road um, with a round, with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway, A, because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B, because there weren't as many cars, no, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played acro- across the str- across the road. Um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two-foot-wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal. And it's always a free of play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, fl- flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders. And uh, Nice guy, but just didn't, didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they... Um, took us to court and uh, we actually got fined this is absolutely true we got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden astounding when you think about it isn't it mm. and when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street and uh, we were actually but that that happens that happens you'll, you'll hear stories we see stories of neighbours falling out over different things you see those those stories every day but that was certainly a true story absolutely absolutely true and during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, we, I was born in Ashton under line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably I was the eldest of three when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was had a big influence going back to that third goal in the World Cup in many years in the back garden. And when we moved on to it, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford. And he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's, it's, uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed, and I was. Maybe not as two-footed as 
Bobby Charlton, even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty, pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them. And uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school living age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well, and I was messing about, as I, I kind of put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then, or centre-half at school. Um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game, and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had the one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got Norton and Norton on out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game from there. I thought a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, the v Lancashire up up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till, what, September? Whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games. For those two or three years, extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other. Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it. And from a standing start, I think my first season around, I think September, October, I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a big field player. So um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 season, three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, 
I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and they were showing a lot of videos of Banksy, the programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was. Uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, and not just setting balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely, lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joker. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met, sometime he'd he have a new joke. And uh, people... Um, Talk about him and who are close to him and remembered what a what a, um, a joke he was, and they're the two things that really stick out for Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky, uh, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banksy is one of the world class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player in, but in the squad and Ray Wilson our left back I'd always argue was a world-class player so you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup some world-class players and Banksy was up there w- w- not with the best the best for me and another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them described trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that had come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially personally surprised, I think it's, <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was, uh, which is, I can see in myself, I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at that level, to compete in their level. My discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across the, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but I'd compare him 
purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer role mm. without any shadow of a doubt. You know, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months, and I think it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a still spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham, it was a great time for the club. And I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the uh, the, the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi-final. So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on the goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge then. I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year, but I've made very little contribution to that success the club had. So, um, yes, it's... The, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it as long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters. And my wife, she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a... I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was. And I enjoyed the experience. And I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. <laughs> New kitchen. <laughs> so it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's... I think the that kind of... Uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and revered sort of comes maybe maybe longer maybe in longer not some sort of immediately after you finish playing but in the long term when um, uh, and I always joke with people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend and, and I always joke and say you only start being called a legend when you're over 70 and I think the, the whatever the word is I'm not sure adulation or recognition or whatever it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not not certainly, um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably 
that's happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management on management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time, without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out, or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, even, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. It ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.